Well, very well done, Darla and Gerald. I always love the harmonica. Wonderful. Piano, too. Amazing. Would you please turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. To give a little background again, we have quite a few visitors today. Uh, Jonah has just been swallowed by the great fish. We're now going into his prayer. And Jonah was given a commission you're probably familiar with to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And he was very reluctant to go there. And there's a lot of background to this. But in short, the nation of Israel was in sin. They were in unrepentant sin. They were in unashamed sin. And God had even sent prophets to Israel, one by the name of Amos, another by Hosea you're probably familiar with. And Amos specifically told them, this was during the life of of Jonah, Amos told them that you are going to be carried off into captivity, you are going to be lost, you need to repent knowing that they wouldn't repent. And uh, Jonah then, at the same time, was told to go to Nineveh, tell Nineveh to repent, because Assyria was going to be the vessel by which Israel was chastened. Jonah didn't really want to see Israel chastened. He'd rather the Ninevites, the Gentiles, be chastened. But nonetheless, he was given this commission. Up to this point, he's been a pretty incredible failure, right? Chapter 1, he was a failure. And I guess that makes him a lot like other figures in the Bible. We were talking about those earlier with with Pastor Weiler. You look at the lives of of Solomon and the way that he failed, and King David failed, and Abraham, and the Apostle Peter, Jacob, failure after failure. Don't you love how Scripture is just so honest about people? We're people. There's only one perfect man who ever lived, and that is Jesus Christ. So Scripture is just replete with these examples of failure. That isn't the worst thing in the world means that there's hope for us. Hope that we can be used by God even though we fail. There's also hope if God intervenes and and we acknowledge our failures and then change. That's what God wanted to see through Jonah. And and there's there's great reassurance really that if you belong to God, if you're His possession, God will intervene. If you belong to Him, He's going to intervene. Jonah, he was a legitimate prophet. He was the real deal. Scripture is very clear about that. Uh, We don't have to wonder if he was legitimate. There's no question he was. Yet he became extremely disobedient to God. In fact, I don't know if there's, there's a greater example of direct disobedience to God in the Bible. Perhaps Solomon. But Jonah was extremely disobedient. He behaved so contrary to God's will, God decided it's time to intervene. And that's really a good thing. The way that you and I know that we are God's children is that God intervenes in our lives when we've made bad choices. He chastens. He corrects our path. He he redirects our paths. And make no mistake, though many times that's very painful, God's intervention is an indication of His direct love for you. It is. And, and if you're running from God in disobedience, if you're, if you're fleeing Him, and He doesn't intervene, He doesn't send those, those raging waves or that big fish to swallow you, if He doesn't do that, then you might want to start to worry. 
Because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the love, Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you, en- you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The question is asked. But if you are without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So not being disciplined is a bad indicator if you're, if you're in error. Far too many people, uh, folks, believe that they're Christians, thinking that God is not intervening in their sin or intervening with their disobedience because God's just perfectly okay with it. Instead, that individual should examine him or herself as the Apostle Paul warned to examine or assess whether or not you're in the faith, actually. Because Corinth, the church that was blatantly disobedient, was warned in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, Paul says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, Unless indeed you fail the test. Jonah, in a sense, had passed the test. God intervened with discipline. Not the most polite way to be intervened either. Not the most comfortable way to be disciplined. Drowning, near drowning at least, probably drowning, swallowed by a fish. God sovereignly prevented Jonah's plans of early retirement in Tarshish. God stepped in. That's not where I told you to go. And God prevented him from escaping that responsibility to go to Nineveh. And we'll talk about that later, what that looks like today for us. But Jonah preferred to be cast into a sea and die rather than obey the will of God. And God didn't even permit him to do that. To completely disobey. From Jonah's prayer contained in chapter 2, the whole death and escape thing that he was trying, whatever he was trying, that didn't even work out as Jonah anticipated. God intervened. And notice, Jonah just didn't jump in the sea. He didn't just jump in, lest anyone be confused here, to tempt God, that God might intervene in their own situation. Though he was willing to die, Jonah is not an illustration of a suicide attempt. That failed. Um, Instead, Jonah did not want to participate in the salvation of the Gentiles at the expense of Israel. This is one more place that this man, just being a man, initially failed. He failed where the God-man, Jesus Christ, later prevails. He's a picture of A sacrifice, not a suicide. He was cast away into the sea. We saw a death, burial, and resurrection represented by his three days in the deep. That Jesus said, tell the story about me. So a resurrection ultimately implies that Israel, here now with Jonah, Israel is going to be set aside for a season. They're going to go into captivity while there's going to be an inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. 
Aren't you glad? Israel is going to be set aside. Nineveh is going to see salvation. Are we following this? What a picture this is of Christ. I hope that this introduction has helped, has helped you. And, and now looking at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Recognize first that, that Jonah is writing this post-ficious. Can I make that word up? He, he's writing this after the fact. He wasn't writing this down while he was in the fish's stomach. It's after he was expelled or vomited from the fish at some point he wrote this down. But his prayer is offered while in the fish's stomach. And the timeline is challenging. It definitely is challenging to put together. And as I stated last week, I could be wrong on this. My impression is that in verse 17, God appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. Then having died, Jonah spent three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, just as Jesus said he spent three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And after those three days, we come to chapter 2, verse 1, which says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. That would mean that Jonah's prayer occurred, if this is accurate, after being revived. After being revived immediately prior to expulsion. After revived immediately before he was vomited out. And his prayer begins initially describing these, this, these events three days earlier. When, when he went into the sea, when he was covered, when he, when he went down to the depths of the sea. And notice this section at the beginning here, chapter 2, it's written down entirely in the past tense. He's looking back. Look at me at verse 2. And Jonah said... I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. He's saying that to the Lord now. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah called out in distress. The wording of the first line is nearly identical to Psalm 18, verse 6. Almost identical. King David in that psalm said, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him, before him came into his ears. And then also we have an uh, example in Psalm 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and He answered me. So we can observe, looking at, at Jonah's prayer, he has a really intimate knowledge of the Psalms. He knows the Scripture. He is praying the Psalms. Various lines of the Psalms make this prayer up. And Jonah knows that God hears his prayer. We all know that God hears our prayer. He also acknowledges that God has been in control of everything that has occurred since chapter 1. God hurled the waves. God appointed the fish. God calmed the storm. In verse 3, we see God cast him into the deep. Chapter 2, verse 3. You cast me into the deep. Who cast Jonah into the deep? God cast him into the deep. Jonah realized that God was even behind 
the sailors' actions as they cast him out of the ship into the water, overboard. Proverbs 21, verse 1, we're all very familiar with. The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16, 9, the the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his every step. Jonah also acknowledges that God's been in control of everything here. The sailors, they want to row to shore, remember? God stopped them and compelled them to throw Jonah overboard. Jonah blames God for being thrown overboard. You did it. There's no freedom of the will implied here. None at all. God overrode Jonah. God overrode the sailors until Jonah cries uncle. Jonah has to cry uncle in this. The Lord's will will be done. And when we pray from Matthew 6, the Lord's prayer, we we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. God's will be done. We aren't giving God permission in that. Thank you very much, Benny Hinn. That God has the power and somehow through prayer we're giving Him the permission. No, what we're doing when we pray like this, as Jonah is praying, we're aligning or realigning our will to God's will. God is in control. And uh, Scripture, having not been completed yet here in the time of Jonah, God's word came directly to the prophet Jonah. And he was told, Arise, go to Nineveh. God directly gave that command to the prophet Jonah. And, and Jonah's response was, no. Well, who wins? God wins. Every time. Every time. And while perishing in the sea, although Jonah knew that God had heard, he thought it was the end. Jonah thought it was done. Have you ever been in a situation like that? In a car wreck? Somewhere you've lost your breath fall-in ski accident where the wind is knocked out of you and you really don't know if this is it. I've been in a situation like that. Um, it's just like, it wasn't catastrophic. It was, I didn't even have to be hospitalized. But it was so sudden and so intense, I thought, maybe this is it. Jonah thought this might have been it. Verse 3, And the current engulfed me. And then he quotes Psalm 42, verse 7, All your breakers and your billows, they passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Notice again, this is past tense. These lines reflect the evident uh, events that happened three days earlier when Jonah determined, nevertheless, I will look again towards your temple. And, and, and as I mentioned several weeks ago, I think Jonah had made a heart determination that he was going to Tarshish permanently. We talked about that three-year transition to get on a boat, go there, turn around, come back. And I said, that is if he ever planned on coming back. I, I doubt that he ever planned on coming back. I think that's the reason he adds, nevertheless, I will look upon your temple again. I don't think he was ever going to see Israel again. I don't think he ever planned on seeing it again. I think here he is alluding to the temple in heaven that he anticipates that he will see God in his temple. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So the temple built in Jerusalem at this time is just a reflection of God's temple in heaven. God sits on His throne. Right now, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Jonah was thinking he'd never see the temple again. 
yet he'd see God in heaven. And his life is passing away, verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. And and this is a, a statement with finality here as he was sinking. The earth with its bars was around me forever. There's a finality. The statement signifies a burial. Jonah knew that he was dying. Then we see in the middle of verse 6, a change. And, and Jonah transitions from the past three days ago to the present. But you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Who brought his life up from the pit? God. He says, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Again, reflecting three days ago. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Certainly it did. And Jonah's prayer of distress uh, was received. God provided the fish to preserve him. And, And now Jonah is praying in harmony with God's will. Previously he was running from God, disobeying God's will. Now he's praying in harmony with God's will. Very much in the present tense now. He says in verse 8, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Notice present tense now. And with that acknowledgement from Jonah, what does God do? Verse 10, The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. This is very difficult. First off, because you're trying to interpret another man's prayer. That's why I'm not spending you know, a couple days in, in the first half of it, a couple Sundays in the second half. Very difficult here, looking at Jonah's his heart and what he's trying to communicate. But it is Scripture. It's not that it's unintelligible. And Jonah here provides us with a really good pattern for our prayer. It, it, it's really the only dignified thing that he's done so far. He hasn't done much good until now. And the most appealing part of this is that Jonah prays Holy Scripture. He prays the Psalms back to God, praying in harmony with the Scripture. And he's reflecting God's truth and he's amplifying God's will. He says, I call out in my distress and you hear me. That's a truth. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. Your billows and breakers passed over me. That's God's control. You brought my life up from the pit. That's actually a quote from Job. Job was written previous to Jonah. And uh, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So this is all good doctrine, quotes of other places of Scripture. And Jonah's prayer reflects his appreciation of of this majesty and greatness of God who rules from heaven. And, And we say things like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? You start with thanksgiving, you start with awe, you start with God's greatness as as Jesus patterned it. And though Jonah disobeyed, he exalts God to his proper place of being in control. And and though Jonah previously disobeyed God's word and his will, he now subjects himself to do God's will. Verse 9, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. That's kind of reminiscent of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Your will be done. 
So now Jonah is, is showing himself properly aligned to what God wants. He's realigned himself. Has God realigned to Jonah? No. Jonah has realigned himself to God. And that's what we do when we pray through Scripture. We are praying God's revealed will, what God has shown in His Word, into our lives. We're not praying our will into God's anticipated future. We don't do that. We are praying to realign ourselves to God because we know what His Word says is true. And the more familiar we become with Scripture, the more we can pray according to God's will. That's both personally, individually, I mean, and corporately. And to a certain extent, we've been modeling this. We'll pray it on Wednesday night here when we get together in the prayer group. We do this in our homes on Wednesday night. And uh, for corporate prayer, perhaps you've noticed this. An example is, is Jesus, as he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. He goes, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech or ask of the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What were we told to do? Ask the Lord to send laborers into his harvest. So it's very appropriate. We've been doing this regularly. Lord, would you please raise up laborers, change our hearts to want to go into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. That's praying in harmony with God's will. That's just a simple example. Our response corporately is to, is to pray that laborers will be sent in the harvest. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 4, Pray for an open door to the Word, and that I may communicate the Gospel clearly. Pray for open doors to the Word. That is praying according to God's will. And we can expect that He will answer. Ephesians 6 adds, Do it with boldness. Be confident when you pray God is doing something. God is acting. Uh, we simply pray His Word. And, and we've discussed this before, so I'm not going to go into great detail because of time, but this is a model that Jonah provides. It's not the only model. It's just a model that he provides. He prays the Psalms in an offering of thanksgiving, and then he adjusts his behavior to God's will, God's revealed will. And, and as far as praying the Psalms, there's no one that I know who does this better uh, than Lee Sherman. She just does. And now everyone's going to want to come to my prayer group on Wednesday nights. But Lee Sherman, she'd probably rather I not mention her. She has an intimate knowledge of the Psalms. You had to have been raised with them from a child. You know the Psalms. And when she prays, she is praying out the Psalms. It is just wonderful to listen to. It's encouraging. It's strengthening. Because it's God's Word. And it's her heart being expressed back towards God. Very encouraging to hear her pray. My address is in the bulletin for Wednesday nights. Put her on the hot spot. And, and as a prophet, Jonah, he's very familiar with the Psalms. He prays in adoration of God. There are no petitions in this prayer. He doesn't ask God for anything. Um, not that there's anything unspiritual about making your requests known to God. That certainly God wants to hear your requests. But that's not what he is doing here. He's simply praying that he has restored himself to God's will. He adores God. That carries us to two lines at the end of the prayer that need special attention. Verse 9, Jonah says this, That which I have vowed, I will pay. What did Jonah vow to God? Does anybody remember? 
Why did he vow it? When did he vow it? Do we have any reference in this book of a vow by Jonah? No. No reference to any vow. And I, and I looked at this and I looked at it. And it's in his study Bible, MacArthur says this about this verse. He goes, Jonah's vow could well have been to carry out God's ministry will for him by preaching in Nineveh. That could have been, possibly. I have a theory, though. I've got a theory after looking at this over and over. The circumstances of Jonah's flight to Tarshish caused me to suspect that this vow occurred earlier in Jonah's life. Actually, much earlier, maybe even decades earlier. And, and I didn't find this expressed in, in any resources that I had, so buyer beware of this. I believe this reference to a vow may reflect Jonah's initial ministry calling when God, God called him to be a prophet. Could have been decades earlier. In fact, most who have been set apart for ministry, most pastors, most missionaries, most who have been set apart by their church, even today, have some kind of formal commitment that the church recognizes. It's often called an ordination. And it's very common even today. We discussed that in First Timothy this past summer, so we won't return there. But it's possible, actually I'd say probably very likely, that when Jonah first acknowledged his calling by God to speak as his prophet to Jeroboam II and the nation of Israel, this is back in 2 Kings chapter 14, that Jonah responded to God's divine call with some kind of vow. God called him to speak, and we've seen this with other prophets, that they say, I'll do it. You got Isaiah, who, who will I send? Isaiah says, send me. That's a vow. Many of the prophets, we see this, and, and we have so little information on Jonah, we don't know exactly what he said, but it's very likely, or I suspect, that Jonah said at one point, as your prophet, Lord, I am going to proclaim your word. Now that was pretty easy back when he was proclaiming border expansion under Jeroboam, right? Earlier, earlier than this book, when everything was going to be rosy. By comparison, when the word of the Lord came again to Jonah and said, now go preach to Nineveh, Jonah didn't like that so much. I don't like that word. He bailed out and I suspect at some point he realized that he had broken his vow as a prophet of God. And after hearing the prophecies of Amos and hearing how God was going to raise up Assyria to judge Israel, Jonah didn't want to proclaim God's word of repentance to Nineveh. He didn't want to see salvation reach out to Assyria. He didn't like them. And although God's word had come once again, and it will come again in chapter 3, God's prophet determined, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go proclaim your word. And he broke his vow. Initially he said, I'm not going to Nineveh. Salvation is for God's people, which is Israel in his mind. God, you're exclusive to us. Yahweh is Israel's God. He's not Nineveh's God. And I'm breaking my vow because I don't like the new audience. I don't like who I have to go share this with. So he broke his vow. That's, see what you think of that. If it's got any weight to it. That's what Jonah initially determined. Salvation's for Israel. Salvation's not for Nineveh. 
In fact, salvation wasn't even supposed to be for those Gentile sailors, if you remember. Back on the boat, wasn't even going to tell them until they forced it. What does he say? After being preserved by God, spared by God, the second half of verse 9, that which I have vowed I will pay. And then Jonah says what? Salvation is only for Israel. No, no, salvation is only for those who I feel like talking to. No, salvation is from whom? It's from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. It's not from Jonah. So finally, Jonah submits to God's will and God's plan. He says, I'll do it. I will go. I don't personally think that this reference to salvation here any way reflects Jonah's being saved from drowning. Some think that. I don't believe so. No, Jonah is finally acknowledging that salvation and who gets saved, who hears the message, is not up to the messenger. It's not up to Jonah. Salvation is entirely a choice by God. God says, I decide who's in Jonah. The Gentiles are in. Aren't you glad? I said that earlier, I know. I'm really glad. The Gentiles are in. That's us, folks. This was 700 years before Christ. And Jonah responds, he said, I will do it, I will keep my vows, I'll accept my responsibility, and I'll declare your word to whomever you choose, Lord God. Even Nineveh. And now Jonah has his theology straight, and what is God's reaction immediately? Verse 10. Then Jonah command, or the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited up Jonah onto dry land. Now everything is lined up straight. We too need to get our theology straight in a lot of different ways. And uh, who's, who is God's message for today? Who is salvation for today according to God's word? The New Testament indicates it is for everybody. The message is for everybody. It's not merely directed to a nation through one guy to one nation to one city even in Nineveh. It is to everybody. And we're told to declare it to everyone. But God still chooses. God still chooses. He, he hasn't relinquished His sovereign choice over to man. He hasn't backed up now and say, well, now it's all up to you. It's the same as in Jonah's day. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent him draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. This isn't a resistible call there. God says, I will raise him up on the last day. God's in control. Our job is merely Jonah's job, and and that is to carry and declare God's message. But salvation is from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And, And know this, folks. If God has determined that somebody somewhere, even in a foreign land, in a distant place, is going to be saved, he is going to put someone there to witness to him. He is going to find a way to put a, put a person there to witness to him, which you hear all the time. It's like, well, what are that, about that person somewhere or someplace that no one was ever, ever able to get to? Oh, God can put, transport a man through a fish. God will get his messenger where he wants him to be. God, God is not, not a weak God who's dependent on us. We are weak people who are dependent on God. Jonah had no control over his own situation. He couldn't even die good. He couldn't. 
But today we now clearly understand the job has for us to do. We learn our lessons through God's word. That is by observing the behavior of Jonah. We look at him, we look at what he did wrong, and we don't do it. We don't repeat it. I recommend we all share the gospel with everybody without having to go through the agony of being in a fish. That would be much better. Folks, we've got a job to do. Have we accepted what God has told us to do? To go tell everyone. And let him work. Let him do what he's going to do. As I call the men forward to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I said, as I said in the outset, communion normally involves a period of examining ourselves in our faith. I didn't say that about communion. I said we need to examine ourselves. Are we in the faith or are we not in the faith? And communion provides that opportunity. Are we living a life of disobedience, not doing what God says, or are we living a life of obedience, doing what he says? And Christians don't typically experience the same extreme correction by God. Uh, going in the belly of a fish. Maybe because God no longer employs one individual prophet to go to one specific market. God doesn't do that any longer. Um, Instead, we have a full revelation of God in the Bible. Everybody that is a Christian knows it. And 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says that all true Christians are members of a royal priesthood. We are all members of a priesthood. There's not single individual Christians anymore who get the individual call to go to a certain distinct individual people. We're all to go out and share as we go. Why? Peter answers why. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we're called to do. And as we celebrate communion, I'll ask the men to come forward. There are many priests in God's kingdom who the Holy Spirit can use to accomplish what you and I are commanded to do. There are many. There's a diversity of them. I see over 100 here. There are many people God can go to. There are many people that can share the gospel. God doesn't have to bring a storm or a fish into your life and forcibly put you back on track. God doesn't have to do that. He can simply permit you to spend your life sitting on the bench out of the game while others race in after that prize. In Philippians, Paul says, I press on towards the goal of the prize. So there are certain people that will go after the prize. And and between the distribution of the bread and the cup, we're going to provide an opportunity to examine ourselves. Are we in the faith? Are we not in the faith? Are we on the sideline? Are we sitting on the sideline in this? Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, Jesus told her. And then he adds in a couple verses later, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. What was her response to Jesus? She went straight into town and she told everybody that she knew about Jesus Christ. 
That was the well springing up into eternal life that flowed out of her. How is your well? Is it springing up? Is it everlasting? Is it clogged up? What do we need to do? Confess it, repent. Today is as good a day as any. We practice open communion. If you have that well of the Holy Spirit in your life, that well that springs up into eternal life, if you're a true Christian who believes that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, we invite you to join us for communion.